in chapter six of our, our series in Acts, and um, you know, we've been moving through and seeing the, the story of the church that started from just really just a group of people that really didn't know what to expect. Their, their leader, their savior, their Lord, the one they loved, had, had gone. And he had made some promises to them, and they waited, and then the Holy Spirit came, and everything changed. And we see that, that this story, the book of Acts, the story of the early church, it's the story of, it is the story of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit at work. It's the story of true community, what happens when, when Christ really changes our lives and changes our relationship. It's, it's the story of love. We see love being poured out in ways never before. And it's the story of the gospel. And one thing I, I want you guys to understand is that this isn't just the story of the first church. If we're going to be his church, and that's the title of our series, Becoming His Church, if we're going to be his church, this needs to be our story too. We're not called to be perfect. And you don't have to hang around here very long to figure out we're not perfect. Um, you could probably maybe get it the first five minutes. Um, we do a lot of good things. I think we have a lot of um, growth and wonderful uh, traits and ministries that we do. But we're not perfect and we're not called to be perfect. We're called to be becoming his church. Yes, someday we will be perfected, but we're called to, to become his church. We're called to be a church of the Holy Spirit, a church that proclaims the gospel, a church of love, a church where real community happens. And that's the challenge. You know, I haven't said this for a while, so I think it's worth repeating. This is what I believe is God's standard. This is God's standard for, for all of us. And that is that we would love everyone perfectly all the time. Anybody got that one down? You can do this. Anybody? Love everyone perfectly all the time. And even though that's difficult, it's difficult to do, um, in, you know, if we think about the world, because you're like, well, there's seven billion people. You know, it's kind of tough. Well, God says, well, how about just here? How about in this, this community, this church? Can we at least love everyone in this community, in this church, perfectly all the time? You see, when people talk about love and they talk about caring, and I'm talking about Christians and non-Christians, there's always this, this little condition. There's this little caveat they have. And that is that they're, they're willing to care. They're willing to care for some, but few are willing to care for all. Willing to care for some, and some are willing to care for, for some more than others. You know, they, they might have a, a bigger group that they care about. 
but are they willing to care for all? In the church, part of this is, comes in the idea of that do we accept people? Do we accept people? Do we accept that they come from different backgrounds? That we have in common our faith in Jesus Christ, that we have in common that we've been, we've been made new, we have in common that we're trying to follow God's word and live by his word. We have all of that in common, but we also have a lot of differences and do we accept those differences? The church I know best is the church that was the latter part of the 20th century into where we are today, and it's the church in, in America. That's the church I know best. And when I think about my 50 plus years in church, I know that I personally, and that nearly every church I've been a part of, has failed in accepting people. Oh, it's not that they hate. It's not just that you hate people. A lot of us can't generate hate. But we don't necessarily accept. We have our little cliques. We have our groups. Maybe it's our age. Maybe it's, you know, we just hang out with people with the same interests, same profession, same gender. And really the church is not supposed to be that at all. One of the wonderful things about what the church is is that we're united by Christ. And make no mistake, when I use the word accepting people, I'm not using the word the way the world does. The way the world uses that accepting people, it means ignoring their sin, ignoring um, you know, all the things that they may be doing that goes against God's word. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those who are believers in Christ that are trying to follow God's word and where the differences are sometimes cultural, sometimes ethnic. Well, we, as we've been going through, through Acts, we've seen the highs and the lows and, and we just came out of them being persecuted being persecuted in a, in a more intense way. You know, the first, the first round of persecution was just, um, you know, they, they got arrested, they were jailed overnight, they were threatened, and then they were released. The second round, similar thing, except now the leaders were beaten. Well, you, you can guess what's coming soon is something far worse, far more intense But through it all, the church is being the church. The church continues to proclaim the gospel. The church continues to to live in this incredible community of love that's that's because of the work of the Holy Spirit and, and God's word in their lives. It continues to happen. And the church continues to grow. One of the things that consistently you've seen through the first five chapters of the book of Acts is the church continues to grow. But now, they're about to face a new challenge. And so in chapter 6, verse 1, we read this. 
Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. What is this difficulty that they're facing? It's one that's difficult for us to understand. Um, Wednesday night, we spent a good amount of time kind of unpacking this problem. And um, I don't know that we have anything parallel to this. I think the closest thing we have to this is um, something like if, if Charles and I go to Japan and I speak really bad Japanese, which I do, by the way, and, um, you know, the, the Japanese people there will, you know, be somewhat impressed that I'm at least trying. You know, you know poor, dumb little gaijin. Um, we're okay. He's trying. He's doing his best. But it's because I don't look Japanese. But if Cheryl, who looks Japanese, uses similar kind of Japanese, pretty sure they're going to look at her like, what is wrong with you? You can't even speak our language. And, and it's, it's, a, it's the closest I think we can get to, you have these Hellenists, and you have these, what they call the Hebrews, which are sometimes called the Hebraists. They're, they're, they're all ethnically Jewish, but the Hebraists are the ones that have faithfully followed the, the Jewish faith. You know, they're the ones that are going to synagogue, going to the temple, you know, you know trying to live out the, the Jewish traditions in every way, religious, cultural, etc. And you've got to remember, too, in their time, they're not living in the world we live in. We try to compartmentalize everything. Like we have our little religion pocket over here and our work pocket over here and our sports pocket over here and our, you know, whatever. You know, we, we divide up our world. It's not how it is. Not in this day. But then you have these Hellenists. The Hellenists are also ethnically Jewish. In other words, they look the same and they're thought to be the same. They might even, at some point, generations past, grandma and grandpas might have been friends and they grew up together in the same towns. But the Hellenists don't do traditional Jewish things. Oh, they might show up at some of the feast, maybe. 
but they don't even necessarily speak Aramaic. They don't, they don't follow the customs. They're actually living like people in a Greco-Roman world. We might not even be able to tell the difference if we saw them. Like, like we would just think like, we wouldn't look at them and think they're ethnically Jewish. And so you have these two groups and they both become Christians and they both join the church. They're there together. And now there's a complaint. You see, what the early church had done was the same thing that the Jewish people had done, is that they took care of the neediest people in their community. And in that day and age, the neediest people in the community were the, um, the widows, widows and orphans, but in this case, it's the widows. And the Jewish people would make daily distributions of food to, uh, to the widows. And this complaint was coming up that the Hellenist widows were being neglected. Now, you might immediately think like, you know, because we think in modern terms, you might immediately think like this is some kind of prejudice, this is some kind of, you know, you know trying to, you know, bias, trying to, you know, hurt people. Maybe it was. Maybe it was. But it could also just be simply they didn't speak the same language. The people from Jerusalem, the ones who are the Hebraists, they, they would have spoken Aramaic. And they, they very well liked, you know, could have spoken Greek also. They were actually, you know, Koine Greek was the, the common language across the empire. But it could be as simple as things were being talked about and explained in Aramaic, and the Hellenists couldn't understand it. The Hellenists, who primarily probably spoke Greek, couldn't understand what was going on. The Bible doesn't actually tell us why they're being neglected. It just tells us that they were neglected. And that's problem enough. You see, we often get caught up in and the reasons we're not perfect. I just said up front, we're not a perfect church. And we often get caught up in the reasons we're not perfect. We often get caught up in why, like if, if you know, some need isn't met in the church, you know, we're like, oh, I didn't know about it, I'm sorry. But all the way up until this verse in chapter six, whenever the church was described, it said, anyone who had needs, they were met. No one was, without, was, was in need. It was constantly said, it was repeated, all the way up to here. And this is the first time there's needs aren't being met. And again, our instant reaction is to get caught up in the reasons for it. And the, the Bible doesn't tell us, Luke doesn't tell us, because it's bad enough that there were needs in the church that weren't being met. It's huge. It's huge. 
Because what's being shown here is something that Jesus taught on just a couple months earlier. And it's this simple principle. His church meets each other's needs. His church meets each other's needs. It's, it's, a, it's a simple thing. It's a simple standard. It's, it's not optional. It's not get most of them. There's no excuses. If we're truly his church, we meet each other's needs. Matthew taught on this in chapter, I mean, sorry, Jesus taught on this in Matthew 25. And I'm not going to read the, the whole section, but, but he's giving what's sometimes called the judgment of the, of the sheep and the goats. And, and he's talking probably in the last week of his life, just maybe a couple days before um, the crucifixion. And so he says this, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. By the way, when he says Son of Man, he's referring to himself. He says, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The second half of this judgment is the judgment of those who do not do this. But here, he's giving the judgment on those who do it. And notice what he says in verse 40. I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. He specifically says, my brothers. One of the things that we find in the Gospel of Matthew, but really throughout the New Testament, is this distinction between the brothers and the world. And by the way, brothers and sisters and the world. The church and the world. He's not saying, when you feed the world, you're doing it unto me. That's how this is commonly understood. But he's specifically saying, no, when you take care of the needs of the people in your church. When you meet their physical needs. When you meet their, their relational needs. When you do that, it is as though you're doing it unto the Lord. 
And look what he says in verse 34. If you do it, this is, this is what results. It's kind of backwards. He says the, what, the, what the reward is first, and then he explains why you're getting this reward. He says, come you who are blessed by my, by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You can guess what the judgment is going to be upon those who do not. Again, this is Jesus talking to his followers about how they're to care for one another. Every need is met. No excuses. No defense. No explanation. The most common one that we like to give is, but I didn't know, I didn't know. Understand this. If we're truly a community, a community of faith, the way that the Bible talks about the church being one, then we know. We know each other. We know each other's needs. If we have any hope of having the kind of unity, the kind of powerful unity, the supernatural unity that we see in the Bible that draws people, that, that gets everyone's attention, that's this, this powerful sign. If we have any hope of that, we have to know one another. And knowing one another is knowing each other's needs. If you think like, no, 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 that's cool, you know, I want that kind of church, and I want to be in that church because there's going to be a lot of needy people, and I want to make sure I meet their needs. You're halfway there. You're halfway there. But many of us, that's not our problem. Many of us, our problem isn't meeting someone's needs. It's letting people know what our needs are. It's letting people know when we're lonely, when we're hurt, when we're sick. I think our church does a pretty good job of trying to meet physical needs whenever we can. Whenever we hear things as, you know, as the deacons, we, we try to respond as quickly as we can. But we're not really good about talking about these other needs. You feel like a stranger? You feel like you're imprisoned? These, we don't, we don't, we don't share it. We don't know. But understand, it's, it's not an excuse. If we're going to be his church, we have to know one another. Have to love one another. And again, it's so hard because you can't just, you can't force these things. I hate when people try. I hate when they say like, tonight we're going to have a needs sharing meeting and we're all going to sit down and just share our needs. With, you know, I hate that. You know, it's like there's moments you know, that in life that those things happen. 
And it's really hard the way we do church now to do that because how, how would this happen if we're not gonna have you know, need-sharing night? Well, it would happen as we're living life together. But that's not how we do church in the modern age. We don't live life together. We live life and then we get together a couple times. But very, very few of us as Christians live life together. And it's hard. Because who wants to share needs with people you don't know? And sometimes the lack of sharing of needs is, re- is a revelation that even though we might be cordial and we might even be friends, we're not really a community. And that's just among people that kind of like each other. If you add what's happening here with the Hellenists and the Hebraists, if you add that cultural dimension onto it, if you add to it that these Hebraists are looking at these Hellenists and looking at them like, you just abandon your culture. You've abandoned this covenant we've had with God. This, this goes back over a thousand years and you're just selling out to the culture. And you gotta know the Hellenists didn't, didn't necessarily have warm and fuzzy feelings for the Hebraists either. See, so add that element to it. And what we find is not just what we see here with meeting each other's needs and the struggle with meeting each other's needs, partly because we don't, we don't experience true community where we're willing to share our needs with each other. But on top of that, we have a hard time because we still struggle with earthly divisions. We still struggle with the divisions that are in our culture when we bring them here in the church. We say the right words. We say the right words. We say, hey, we're one body in Christ. But we struggle. And like I said, um, you know, we're not sure why they weren't served. Maybe it was prejudice. Maybe it was language barrier. The problem was, was that no one was trying to overcome the problem. See, it doesn't really matter why. The needs were not being met. You know, one of the things that I think was a step in the right direction that, you know, churches on the mainland were doing, and I don't know that it went on this much here, but, you know, in trying to reach some of the uh, cultures in, in, their, in their community, what they would do is they would offer English classes, especially for, you know, people coming from other countries that offer English classes. Great. You know what I never saw? I never saw churches saying, we have a bunch of people who speak Spanish who are, who are in our coming, moving into our neighborhoods. We as a church are going to learn Spanish. Never saw that. 
Oh, I'm sure it's happened. There's so many churches, I'm sure someone's happened, but it's not common. Our love extends to the point of wanting to teach them our language, but it doesn't go so far that we're willing to learn their language. We're willing to listen to their awkward, weird English as they're learning it. We're not willing to put ourselves out there and speak that awkward, weird Spanish or Japanese or whatever else. We struggle. We struggle with earthly division still today. Still today. And it comes up in big and, and small ways. Billy Graham, I think, is the one who said that Sunday morning, Sunday morning, and he was talking about it in the 20th century, is the most segregated hour in the United States. We all go to our nice, our nice you know, churches that are full of people just like me. We struggle. I like our church. I look around and I see people of different ages. I see people of different ethnicities. I see people from different backgrounds. But I also can just immediately think of people who live within a couple miles of here that we haven't reached, that we haven't connected with. And the answer is why? Or maybe they come here. Maybe they come to something we're doing. Maybe it's a worship service. Maybe it's the fine arts um, program. Maybe it's, you know, um, you know, the things that, you know, we've done in different communities, sports camps and things like that. Maybe they've come, but they've never come back. Why? Sometimes it's just them. And that's fine. But we, what you always have to ask ourselves is, what about us? Are we the kind of church where someone who's not like any of us here can come and feel welcome and feel accepted? And by the way, I'm not even talking about non-Christians particularly. I'm even talking about believers who come We still struggle with earthly divisions. But this is what his church does. His church finds solutions. He finds, his church finds solutions that address needs and maintain unity. I've said it a couple of times, we're not perfect. My goal isn't that I can somehow get us all to be perfect. But what I care about is, are we all moving in the same direction? Several places Paul will write in the New Testament. He'll write something like what I'm going to read here from Galatians. He says in Galatians 3, 27 and 28, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you've been baptized, 
you've had true faith in Jesus Christ, you have put on Christ. It's the imagery of kind of like wearing Christ clothes. And if that's the case, we don't treat each other. We don't treat each other first and foremost by our earthly distinction. We treat each other first and foremost as those who have been baptized into the same body, redeemed by the same blood, empowered by the same spirit. That's what we do. We're one in Christ. We're one before Christ. And it never talks about forgetting. It never talks about ignoring the differences. We're different. It's okay. It's okay. Apparently, after my DNA test, I'm no longer just a Korean Haole guy. I'm a Korean Filipino Haole guy. And that's okay. And some of you guys, you know, you got your, your ethnicity. You got your background. You got your interests. It's okay. We're moving in the same direction. We've been baptized into Christ. We've put on Christ. And we're being one. We're moving towards being one. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so we see, we look at their solution. What was, what was the apostle's solution? The apostle's solution wasn't to say like, man, we're just going to have to stop this gospel preaching thing. Uh, let's, uh, let's go make sure everybody's needs are met. They didn't say like, well, this is a catch-22. No, they found a solution that worked. And they, they came up with, you know, hey, guys, go... Go choose among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. We'll give them this job. And they did. And the church, which is probably at best split Hebraist, Hellenist, but perhaps it's predominantly Hebraist, they choose seven men, six of whom are very likely Jewish men who are Hellenist. And the last one, he's a proselyte. Proselyte means he is ethnically a Gentile. He's not even ethnically Jewish. And this is who they choose to do the job. What does this tell me? This tells me that, that the church wasn't trying to keep this division that the church was trying to make this, this work and to come up with the best solution. You know, we probably would have tried, oh, let's be fair, let's have four Hellenists and three Hebraists. And that proselyte guy, yeah, just move him on the side. He's probably the only one. Let's not, let's not bother him. 
He doesn't understand. That's what we did. We tried to come up with some fair solution that we think is fair. But what we, look, what we see here is they come up and all of these names are Greek names. They're, they're living out what Paul's later going to write. They're being diligent. They're working hard they're to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And again, that's what we're called to do. And the last bit there, where it says the Word of God continued to increase. His church continues to proclaim the gospel in powerful ways, continues to proclaim the gospel. They don't stop, they don't compromise. They don't say, hey, we've hit a rough spatch, let's take a break from, from preaching God's word. No, they continue. And I think that's so important because in our day and age, in the, for, the, for, for unity's sake, we often are willing to compromise the truth of the Bible. We cannot do that. We cannot do that. It's, it's not an either or. We're not trying to have unity for unity's sake. We're not trying to allow everybody to define everything however they want, and, but because we're using the same words, it's okay, we at least pretend like we agree. No. The church, as Jesus said in Matthew 25, needs to be about meeting each other's needs. But the church also needs to be about proclaiming the gospel. And we immediately get in our heads like, okay, so we can have little jobs here and little jobs there. But I wanna tell you, as we're gonna learn next week, of those seven men that are named, we only hear about two of them, maybe a third. And neither one of them just stays serving tables. Both of them become very powerful witnesses in a really short amount of time. His church, we, we, know, we don't just proclaim the gospel, we live the gospel. But let me say this the other way too. We don't just live the gospel, we proclaim the gospel. One of the wrong-headed sayings that became very popular and it was attributed to, I think it was St. Francis of Assisi, and he said, it was quoted as saying, you know, uh, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. That's not, that's not truth. Words are always necessary. People need to understand the reason that you love one another. The reason that we have unity here, the reason that we meet the needs of people who aren't part of our family, who can't do anything to help us, they need to know the reason. And the reason is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ transforming our lives. That's why. And so we see this example, really simple example, and the, they handle it 
so well. And the result is the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient. 